Welcome to Our Soul, a podcast by Kelly Fox and Terry Williams from the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Okay, so it's the 19th of April, and I feel like no matter what we say, it's going to be completely obsolete in two or three days, certainly before this podcast is released, because we are sitting here on the precipice of yet another jury trial of a state agent who has killed a black body in the United States, which, like, I wish this were unique, but the fact is we know, like... We already have a script for how this show goes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there is going to be a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, the trial that, uh, you know, the defense tried to make uh, into a trial of George Floyd. We are going to get some kind of jury verdict, and regardless of what it is, it's not going to be justice. And people are going to respond, whether, um, you know, folk responding to the injustice of it all or people responding because they now feel threatened as white people being held accountable for racism in America. And Mm -hmm. we're going to be in some very different chaotic place in three or four days. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like most of what we can talk about in this moment is just like how we got here and how here is just not a good place living in America 2021, where, you know, the points are made up and um, the score doesn't matter because it's all the same as Mm -hmm. it's been for the last 30 years. Yeah, um, as I've been talking to people in the last week or so, as like, it seems like black death after black death and attacks from police and, um, and all of that. Uh, have been happening, the thing that's kind of been coming up for me is, uh, I don't remember where exactly I got this from, but I've been, as anybody who's been listening to this podcast knows, uh, I've been doing research around restorative and transformative justice. And in the, in that research, I came across somebody who was talking about outcomes around um, different conflicts. And this may actually be in uh, Conflict is Not Abuse, and I can't remember. But anyway, in the end, when it comes to trying to make amends for a conflict or a harm or an abuse, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is when an injustice has been done, that injustice will never go away. Like, nothing that anyone does can take away the fact that an injustice happened. And as I think about, like, whatever the outcome of this trial is going to be, or whatever the outcome of, like, court um, is going to be, it's still not going to take away the fact that uh, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin. That, That... is not nothing is going to heal the wounds that were created by that and I think that's something to really keep in mind as we're moving forward and I think that you know there's going to be something that happens I believe that regardless of the outcome of the the verdict or whatever uh that there will be people in the streets whether that's the white supremacists who are (laughs) feeling threatened or um the continued cries for justice um, from organizers um, across the state. 
there there's going to be an outcry because like <laughs> it's just the world we live in absolutely there is injustice after injustice that like people just haven't even taken accountability for and that's why we're kind of stuck in this moment of not being able to move forward because there's no accountability um i mean and that's not to say that like this trial shouldn't even happen because like why does it matter the world still sucks um but it is to say that like this even if he got fully convicted and like went to jail and got charged with everything uh, that doesn't erase the pain. That doesn't mean that people won't be in the streets. It doesn't mean that, like, black grief is not justified still. We've been dealing with, like, what, 402 years <laughs> of injustice in America for black people? And it's a far longer history for just, like, white supremacy in general. But just taking that, like, nothing is going to take away... The fact that we are still carrying generational trauma from all the way in the beginning from slavery <laughs> till now and so just because it's been even if even if everything went great that doesn't mean it's going to take away the trauma and the pain that has been this last year knowing that apparently cops just get free reign to just murder people and then you know uh what is it like do uh do now and ask for forgiveness later like that's essentially if he if he got fully convicted that would be kind of kind of what's going on but well yeah and and i think the the struggle is i've heard a lot of people say well you know if people just aren't going to be happy you know regardless of the verdict then you know why even have a trial and i that's that strikes me as as a white person i'm just embarrassed for white people right like because that's white people foolishness right there um, cause like, you know, I'm a fat man and I go exercise because I don't want to continue to, uh, you know, gain weight or lose too terribly much weight. I want to keep like a good handle on it, but just because I go walking in the park, um, that doesn't mean, you know, one walk in the park is going to solve any kind of, you know, weight balance issue. If I'm sitting at home, you know, eating all the pandemic goodies, right? Like there's gotta be balance, but it doesn't mean you stop walking in the park either. Maybe this is some of my guilt coming out that I should be walking more than I eat. But here it is. Like, you know, America has been for so, 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 so long um, just ignoring the basic tenets of justice in every system we have. We might as well get some justice, right? Uh, if if we can't get it all, if we can't even get, you know, a good portion, we might as well get, you know, some margin of that. But, I, you know, before our, our uh, uh, recording clicked on here, we were talking just briefly about um, this is the, the 30th anniversary year of Rodney King being beaten in, uh, you know, California. And it made me feel really old, of course, because I mentioned this and, and uh, you, you, Kelly, said, oh, that was before I was born. Oh, you know. Yeah. So like and, and I and I give great thanks that you were not around to witness that because I can remember as a child, um, as a as a white child in Appalachia with uh, two union organizer parents who were very dedicated to uh, racial equity and just just more so in tune with um, the racial solidarity of the labor movement in our region. 
Um, we watched the news that night when that, you know, videotape was broadcast. And it was the first time that a large portion of white America, like, had to see what black America had been telling us for decades was their reality, centuries, really, was their reality. Because there was this man on a balcony across the street from where Rodney King was being absolutely bludgeoned by police officers. There was this guy with a handheld, you know, camcorder, one of those shoulder-mounted, you know, old-school, you know, 1990s kind of things. And he filmed the whole thing. And we got to see for the first time in, at least in my memory to that point, we got to see what police brutality looks like in the moment. And it was gruesome. You know, these men were taking turns, um, you know, like, like roasting marshmallows around a fire, except they were coming down on this man with blows from billy clubs and just, you know, just harming him ridiculously and of course the outcome of that incident was that the whole nation was scandalized um white america was shocked i think to the point that it was very uncomfortable because you know we all realized oh wow you know like this is this is real um and we have ignored it for so long you fast forward to a year later it was in the spring, I believe it was I believe it was late April, as a matter of fact, that the jury returned a verdict of not guilty and acquitted all of those police officers. And immediately LA erupted, right? Like they call it the LA riots, but really it you know it's it's the racial uprising of of nineteen ninety-two. And for five what, four or five days, people went absolutely just outpouring in the streets. I mean, there was, sadly, you know, there was a lot of violence. Um, There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of stuff going on. But at the end of the day, you know, every bit of it was a reaction, a response to the failed justice system the absolute failure of you know any the bringing any kind of justice to that situation and white america all of a sudden you know started to become moralists on oh you know it's awful to see that property damage and that's terrible and you know even even my um responsiveness to it as a child i thought that's just terrible that all of that's happening and all of us just kind of forgot that yeah but the the real problem here is that the injustice happened and these people got away with it. They didn't spend time in prison. They didn't spend time in jail. They got to go free and go home to their families. And Rodney King was still at that point learning how to to really walk again, <laughs> you know, after the violence that was done to him. So and and we see that repeated now thirty years later. We see that repeated so often where you know we see the violence that's done. Uh, children like Adam Toledo are shot in the street, right? George Floyd dies because a a police officer decided to kill him, made a nine and a half minute decision to kill him. And, that's a long and time. it is, it, and it's it's a long time to perpetually continue to make that choice, right? It was not like he just made one choice in a split set. Like he continually made the choice to choke the life out of this man breath by breath above his objections and his calling for his mother. 
right? Like that is what we saw. We are witnesses to that in this moment. And people are still in a place where they will look at that situation and say, yes, but you can't justify any property damage. Like, are you serious? Like, I don't care about property. This man was murdered Mm -hmm. by a person who we pay to be in our streets. Like, we pay this man's salary. We pay this police officer's salary. He got paid by George Floyd's own tax dollars to murder him. That is the bigger problem here. I don't care what folk getting out of these stores. I don't care, you know, who showed up late to the party and decided they're they're going to try to get, you know, the start of their reparations out of a Nike store or something or whatever, you know, however they want to want to talk about it. I don't care about that because you know what? All those Nikes are going to get replaced. Yeah. That Burger King is going to get rebuilt. It's probably rebuilt now. That's right. Like, hate to say it, but like property and people, big difference. Big damn difference. You can replace right? property. You can't replace people. And, That's right. And um, this also reminds me of... Uh, so there was a an NPR uh, podcast. There's this podcast called Code Switch. It's really great. I really like it. Um, and last year, um, after the death of George Floyd... Uh, they put out an episode called A Decade of Watching Black People Die. And that's just in the recent the recent history of um, all of the recorded incidents of black death, starting with Eric Garner in 2014. Um, and it's just... It, there's just so, so... The fact... The thing that really gets to me is the fact that it had to be recorded to get anything to get even an ounce Mm. of accountability why is it that for for white people to care to believe black people it has to be recorded as if we are not a reliable source why is it that when when black people repeatedly talk about harm from the police from the people who are supposed to be paid to protect them it's not validated and it's it's not validated until there is recording and sometimes not even then like that is an injustice i don't i also don't care about property like literally even even if it was my house and i wasn't here like i have insurance (laughs) i pay for insurance for a reason and i don't i mean i don't want to lose my stuff but stuff is replaceable and what isn't replaceable is people. And I could, I, like, I don't, I don't think that property damage does not warrant death. 100%. And I, you know, I think part of the struggle around why we we look at our, our current situation, you know, which you outlined expertly, Kelly, you know, the idea that black folk are not believed Unless there is, like, visual evidence. And even then, white folks get to be the judge and black folk get to be judged. Mm -hmm. That system is ingrained in our society by design. You know what this makes me think of? Of um, white Jesus. Because, Mm. you know... um, All right now. (laughs) They always say, like, uh, you know, God is the only one who can judge me. God is the only judger here. But... Is continuously the white people who get to decide if the the harm of black people warrants any accountability, 
or right. if the harm of black people even happened. If it's right in front of their eyes, they get to be the judge of if that's harm for people, not the people who are actually harmed themselves. And I'm kind of thinking even in this moment, so if I'm sorry if this thought is not fully formed, but if if God is the only one who can judge people and white people are the only people who can judge uh, whether or not somebody else uh, receives or has uh, felt harm, then I feel like that's connected between the fact that white people view God as white. Even though Absolutely. God is like a a like undefinable source. <laughs> like, and, and the ability to make God in our own image, mm-hmm. right, which is what that is, has created an American, particularly an American Christianity, but an American religious landscape where people justify what happens in the streets by what their theological interpretation is, right? So many times I've heard people say, well, you know, it's it's tragic, you know, these, these killings, but, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, it, sometimes things just happen, and that's the brokenness of the world, and that's the sin condition we live in. You know, as a Christian, I hear all these loaded terms, and it's just, it's just white opium to get over the pain, the minimal amount of pain that we feel as white people when we see the true pain of black folk and brown folk and indigenous people who are really tragically hurting in ways that that we not only don't understand but don't want to understand. You know, and and as a as a white person, I've I've got to observe like you talk about generational pain in black communities and and the generational trauma of having to constantly fight for your rights. As a white person with, you know, I have a lot of white friends <laughs> to turn that phrase on its end, right? I experience among a lot of my white friends a corollary. Only it's not generational pain and trauma, it is a generational longing to be as powerful as our ancestors were over other people. And it's really terrifying. It is terrifying because the movement for black lives in this space, the movement to lift up folk who have traditionally been ground under the heel, the boot heel of our social systems is a movement that requires the loss of privilege of people who look like me. And we feel that in our bones. And there are people in my community, there are white people in this state who feel that and they feel like that is diminishing who they are because they enjoy power. And they enjoy power over, not not shared power with, but power over. And it's that loss of preeminence, that loss of superiority, that inability to constantly be the judge. Before there were cameras on folk, when when black folks suffered in, in our communities, the word of a white person in a court of law was the gold standard. Because there were white juries and they wanted to hear white words about the white perspective of what happened. Now, that is not the case. The reactivity... I think parallels 
the generational trauma that that we see in black communities. There is a generational fear of losing superiority, losing supremacy among a lot of white people, and it's it's terrifying. There are two things that uh, I really I really want to bring up from that. Um, first of all, uh, one thing that I thinking about that generational trauma thing is one thing I think is that black people have had to be forthright about their pain because of the lack of um, power over ourselves, you know? Like, um, so when I'm thinking about generational trauma, I feel like um, in terms of black people, um, thinking about like black music and black art and black history and all of the ways that pain has been moved into artwork, I think like that um, black people have had to learn to express their trauma in ways that white people have not had to. Like, I think that white people (laughs) have had this power to ignore, to put the toxic history that they have, even if well-meaning white people, if you want to say that they are not racist and that they are beyond it, or just want to put the word racist in a box, they had the privilege of putting that in the box. And I think that there's somehow, or some... In some people, deep down inside, this fear of having to open up that box of racism that they put away a long time ago because they had the power to. Whereas black people have not had the power to put it in a box. It's all over our skin. Like, how are we supposed to do anything about it? And so we've been able to express and we, like, um, do art and do music and be in community with each other. Um, But, like, we still can't stop people from killing us. And that's why I feel like there is this continued reckoning um, there. The second thing, oh, uh, so I always bring up, <laughs> I always bring up the book club that we're doing um, on restorative and transformative justice. And when you were talking about power over refer, uh, as as compared to power with, um, that really brought up for me the book that we're reading for this month, month which is Conflict Is Not Abuse. And honestly, um, this book has been difficult for me to read, um, just because, like, it's it's just hard. It it's just hard to really look at myself critically and see the ways that I um, may be inflating conflict with abuse. But one thing that um, Sarah Schulman, who's the author of the book, talks about is that uh, harm and abuse cannot come from someone who has power, like, who is, who has power being acted on them, you know? Like, so the, the abuser cannot be the victim. (laughs) Like, that, that just clearly makes sense. It's not, it's not possible for... Yeah, because reverse racism is utter crap, right? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Because racism... It has to come from someone who has power holding it over someone else. And so, um, and, and the same thing is true of abuse. Abuse is a, is a, is a type of um, harm that comes from someone holding power over someone else. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, whatever kind of abuse it is, it's always from someone who has some amount of power, right? And so you, that's why, like... Um, the, at the beginning of uh, the conflict is not abuse. Sarah Schulman talks about um, the like fear of black people and how um, it's not it cannot be abuse because it's for one it's just not true. Um, but like the 
the overconflation of harm that she talks about is basically when people see the fear of black people and decide in their minds that that is harmful to them and because it's harmful for them that warrants a defense or an attack to to care for themselves but the the thing is that even though it's not externally uh often said as harm it, or as abuse that internal thought process of this black person being in my white neighborhood is abuse is is what causes black death this idea that like by something harmful being within any or something that i perceive as harmful being anywhere near me is abuse and warrants me attacking it is um is that over conflation of harm and uh i think i don't know that it's just and but but isn't isn't that really like the tie-in for reproductive justice and rights right like the whole situation around black death in america begins and ends with the like slavery era prescriptions around the white slave master mm -hmm. gets to tell well i i shouldn't say slave master the white the white enslaver gets to direct the reproductive life of people with wombs who are literally owned property who are who are against their will held as as possessions mm -hmm. that brings us to a modern era where restrictions on a a person's right a patient's right to choose an abortion mm -hmm. or to choose birth control or any any method of birth control is fundamentally a violence and aggression done against them. It's an abuse. Because at the end of the day, if you are a black mama in this nation today, you should have the right to decide whether or not you want to bring a child into this racist world, into this racist system, into this racist nation. You should have a right to decide whether you want to bring a child into the world right now or later on. Mm -hmm. That whole concept of when to have children and how to parent your children amid an environment of state-sanctioned violence, all of that is a reproductive justice issue. And at the end of the day, when you talk about aggression and people having power over other folk, it's so often very white, very male very cisgender people who do not have wombs who are making the choices for people with wombs about how they're going to use them and that that is the abuse mm -hmm. there is not a you know kind of the corollary um the corollary to reverse racism there's not like the men's rights movement mm -hmm. of you know abortion care no if you have a womb, you get to govern how that womb is used. End of story, end of conversation, end of dialogue. There's there's no like there's no meeting in the middle on I think bodily autonomy is good versus hmm, maybe you shouldn't have a right to, you know, your own body. No, there's no middle ground. Right? It either you believe in bodily autonomy or you're a fascist. That's the option, right? Hmm. And, and I think that's just, like, a continued example 
of um, that whole God complex that I was just talking about. The, the when we when um, white Christianity shows images of God, it's often a white, presumably cisgendered man uh, who is playing God, and I think that continues into the ways that uh, white. Uh, cisgendered men try to control people who have wombs and their bodies and their choices and whether or not their children get to see old age or whether or not they have to experience police violence it's all controlled by the the people that have been or that by the image that white people have created of god that same that same image is the same image that's controlling over people's bodies that's um deciding whether or not black people get to live or die or whether or not their harm is warranted or even exists so i think in short <laughs> let's just burn the white god <laughs> let's get rid of white jesus because that's not even historically accurate um and and i think we really need to um uh you know be be aware of this power that's over and the the um the people who are deciding that they get to play god because they they shouldn't get to decide that we that black people that people of color the children get to live or die children who are just trying to live their lives i i'm just thinking of adam toledo and how how hard that is but Amen. Amen. Hello, and thank you for listening to Our Soul and for listening to our podcast online exclusive. I don't usually do an interjection like this in between the podcast exclusive and the radio version that we put out, but I just want to remind people that, again, we recorded this on Monday, April 19th before the George Floyd verdict was out and before the tragic murder of Micaiah Bryant. And although in our podcast exclusive, we talk about how ridiculous CPD is and we talk about Chitfest and everything that's going on with that here in Columbus, I feel like I would be remiss to not mention this tragic loss that we've had. Another sign that the work is not over. So I just want to take this moment to say her name, Micaiah Bryant. Thank you. Okay, so, like, can you explain to me why your tax dollars up in Columbus, because my, my tax dollars are down here in Chillicothe. We're, we're paying for, you know, like, uh, duck food in the park and other, you know, <laughs> uh, really, really important local community things, right? Um, can you explain to me why your tax dollars in Columbus are paying $1,500 for a helicopter, $1,500 an hour for a helicopter to go take joy rides around the city of Columbus and sign out, sign out CPD over black neighborhoods? 
Like that that story that hit with the flight tracker and all that mm-hmm. stuff. I I hope everybody who's listening on here got to see this because if you didn't, you're gonna like hear me and think that I'm an absolute conspiracy theorist or a mm-hmm. nut job. And I'm 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 just I'm regular pastor crazy, right? Like so, but. I'm sitting here looking through stuff on Twitter a few days ago, and I saw this image, and I thought, oh, surely, surely Columbus police did not take a helicopter on a joyride all the way up and down the city and then playing around making their their initials up in the sky. Sure enough, mm-hmm. they did, and the police issued a statement that basically said, Oh, you know, we have to take it out for, you know, a certain amount of flying hours. And there were no calls missed, you know, during this stuff. But we called. certainly understand how. And, and and their statement was, well, we certainly understand how this could appear, you know, like, uh, you know, it was inappropriate. It's like, it doesn't appear like it's in a, inappropriate. You've got, like, teenage boys who apparently are feeling bad for themselves because they are recognizing that their profession is now under the kind of scrutiny it should have been under for the last 60 years, who feel sad and sorry and now want to go on a joyride and try to assert some kind of bizarre, like, dominance in this community. And I'm, I'm all upset, right? Like, and, and this is, this is 100% my whiteness coming out right here, right? So I was all upset because I'm like, that's such a waste of money. And can you look at that? And I'm talking to my friends about this down here. And, you know, what, one of my colleagues who's African American said, but you, you don't understand the real problem. Like, this is like 1am, 2am, and they're flying a helicopter over black communities. Mm-hmm. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I I am so clueless because clearly that is not an enjoyable no. experience to be sitting in your home waking up and there's a helicopter flying around. Because first off, you don't know why they're there, right? Like, are they chasing somebody around the neighborhood? Are they coming for somebody in the neighborhood? Are they coming for somebody and that somebody's me because they have bad information? Like, it's going to be a Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. type situation? Like... You know, all this stuff and all of it's happening because people at CPD got bored and decided $1,500 an hour to go terrorize the people who are paying the gas Mm -hmm. bill for this helicopter. And then I find out that Columbus has six six helicopters in the city. Chicago only has like two. What? What? Who needs who needs six helicopters in the city of Columbus? And 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 that much money. Mm. And like, well, for one, I would just like to mention that I'm eighty percent sure I just heard a helicopter over, like where I'm living. Like I think I just heard it just now. So it's like a constant presence in Columbus is the sound of helicopters. Um, and for two, um, I also want to mention, like along those same lines, I was in two different events um, on. Saturday, one was a fellowship and another one was the the people's agendas for the people's agenda for justice skill building sessions in which I held a session on restorative or um, on community and self care. And even in the beginning of that, um, the facilitator said like, oh, I hope you can't like hear the helicopters that are currently going around my apartment. And then later in my own fellowship, one of the other fellows was like, there has been cops surrounding my house for 30 to 45 minutes and I don't understand why. And it's just, it's not only the fact that they're wasting money. It's not only 
the fact that it's ridiculous that we have six uh, helicopters in Columbus, Ohio, which is not even as large as um, Chicago, and Chicago has two. Um, but it's the surveillance. It's the feeling that CPD is in control of Columbus and there's nothing we can do about it. They literally could drop things on us for all we know. And to have that kind of droning in the middle of the night is insane. And I will speak from personal experience. I used to live in uh, South Hilltop, which is right near Franklinton, um, which is currently being gentrified, which we don't like that. But regardless, I would like to say that South Hilltop and Franklinton is a lovely place to live. And I have lived there. So there you go. Anyway, but um, when I lived in South Hilltop, I lived right by the um, cemetery. And there had been times where we would park our cars at the back of our house. And um, you'd have to cross our backyard to get to the house. So we'd park it in the back, walk across the backyard to get home. And there were a couple times where my roommates talked about how there were police lights on my own backyard that they had to walk through to get into our house. Like, it, it feels unsafe even if we have done nothing wrong, even if we're just living our lives trying to come home from work. You know, we pay our taxes. We, we buy local. <laughs> like, why is it that we constantly have to feel surveilled? And that's not even including, you know, all the other ways that were <coughs> surveilled in the world. Like, I don't, I don't so, think this added yeah, uh, presence yeah. in my life that I'm paying for. So, so fun story, because you, just mentioning it, I thought, I'm going to go look this up. So, do you know that the city of Chicago, like the, the actual city, not the metro area, but the city okay. of Chicago... When compared to the city of Columbus, the city of Chicago is only 10 square miles larger than the city of Columbus in terms of area. Now, obviously much higher population density, but like if Chicago with 234 square miles of area can get by with two helicopters, you'd think that the city of Columbus with 225 square miles with with less area um might be able to get by with fewer or maybe even none because i don't know about you but i i have never been uh in need of the police when they have arrived via helicopter the only instances that i've ever <laughs> Just, like that i or i mean i've, I've never really been in need of the true. police per se but um you know, there uh, was so now i just thought of two other things um for one, this is a great exclusive. Yeah, this is a great exclusive. Just remembering things. For one, um, there was I, I heard that there was um, you know when they were justifying why so much use of the helicopters on Saturday. I guess there was somebody who had a warrant out for like stealing property that they uh, that was just a misdemeanor that they were just circling his house for a long time. Yeah, yeah, a, a misdemeanor for less than $200 worth of theft. And so we're paying $1,500 for that. Okay, great. $1,500 an hour, because they were out looking for him for three hours. So that's what, $4,500? Is my math right? $4,500 looking for a man who stole less than two. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just a silly Appalachian down here, right? Like, I got to take off my toes to count to 20, but I'm pretty sure that's a dumb investment. Sounds like a dumb investment. That is a 
dumb investment because even if you do get him booked and put in and he pays restitution, he's going to pay $200 of restitution to somebody that ain't the people who paid out $4,500. And that's $4,500, mind you, just to fly the thing. It's not to pay the salaries of the people who are sitting around because let me tell you, police getting paid well. Right. They 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 ain't getting no like eight dollar, eight fifty or fifteen dollar an hour jobs out here, right? Like they getting paid well, they got good benefits, so and then let's keep that in mind. I've been thinking, um so I watched this show yesterday on Netflix. It's called Why Did You Kill Me? which is about like uh this girl who was murdered in like a gang situation, I'm pretty sure. Um, but one of the things that kept them from, you know, you you want to talk about, like, well, not you, but, like, people want to talk about, like, how police are important because, like, uh, crimes and stuff and, like, uh, what are we going to do about violent offenses? That's, like, the thing that I always hear whenever I talk about restorative and transformative justice is what are we going to do about violent offenses? Well, this girl uh, got, like, shot in a drive-by situation and... Uh, one of the things, like, immediately that was an issue was that the family did not want to work with the police because they knew that the police is not a good a good uh, presence in their community. And also, um, one of the people in the family was a, a drug user. And so they were, like, not wanting to bring up their drug, drug use because, you know, the harms that come from, from admitting that you have a drug problem, like, that's that's not good. Um, so, like, the police are not a good source of being able to do things efficiently. Well, like, if I wasted and, that much time doing my job, I mean, I would hope right? that they wouldn't keep me We'd on get fired. We would get mm-hmm. fired. We'd get fired. Well, and so here, I, okay, all right, so I'm going to I'm gonna sing you a song on my people here, <laughs> all right? Like, I'm, like, legitimately. So, I hear this, I hear this, I got two points to make, so... I hear this hollering and yelling all the time about, oh, you know, but if we get rid of the police, if we abolish the police, you're not going to have anybody, you know, to stop violent offenses. And there's just going to be, you know, raping and killing and murdering and just all over the place. Let me tell you something right now. Police don't stop violence. Right. People have been killed in this community in the past three, four years, shot up in their houses, cut and murdered women left for dead in the river we have women who are still missing in this community sex workers who are missing in this community that nobody gives a rat's rip about and that the police certainly did not you know save so we're sitting around here already experiencing violence and the only situation is that we don't have money to take care of the healing that happens after that violence because we're too busy paying for police officers who people think are stopping that stuff up front. That's the first problem. The second problem, and this is the real song of my people, right? So, like, I'm at Appalachian. I am born and bred down here in the hills, right? Generations of my people have worked this land have worked the railroads, the paper mills, every union job you can think of. We have had it in our family. And my people, historically, don't call the sheriff. Mm -hmm. They don't call the law. They don't call... Because back in the 20s and even before then, you don't call the law because the law is going to come up in here and shut down your still. Right? Now, you know, folk down here don't call the law because the law is going to come out and tell you you can't grow marijuana. Right? Because, like, marijuana is a new moonshine. Right? We've always found ways to get along in the, the fascistic 
capitalist economy that tells us we're not allowed to make money in the ways that rich people make money, right? Because like selling marijuana right now, you're not allowed to do that without a license and you got to be a rich person to get a license, right? Well, way back in the day, you know, my ancestors making moonshine were not allowed to have distilleries because that was, you know, a highly regulated industry that you had to be a wealthy person to do. So like we have a long tradition in this place of acknowledging that the law is not written for us poor people, right? And it's not written for poor people. It's not written for black folk. It's not written, certainly not written for single women trying to make any kind of a living. So like my family and my culture, there's not an explicit, like we hate the police, but there's a clear understanding that like, you don't need to call the sheriff about that. I mean, you know, if somebody stole something from you, um, I've, I've seen, you know, my father many times go down and have a conversation with folk. Right. And, you know, people have an understanding in community that, all right, you know, this is OK, but that is not, you know, this is fine, but that is not good. If you need something, come and ask me. Don't take it from me. Right. But at the end of the day, it's just stuff. Right. So like calling the police into your community or calling the sheriff into your community for those, you know, of us who, who lived out in the boonies was not something we even thought about doing because we don't want to get them involved in this because the moment they get involved in this, people get hurt. People get harmed. People end up having to go in front of judges who don't have our best interests in mind and, frankly, you know, historically haven't cared about our people. like, what came up in this this, uh, (laughs) this Netflix movie (laughs) that I watched was that uh, she Mm. was like, I didn't call the police. I didn't want them involved. Like, I would rather not. Um, and, you know, and also thinking about how, especially CPD, um, like, I think, I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure a vast majority of the police force here in Columbus don't actually live in the areas that they, uh, are enforcing the law over. They are not a part of the communities that they're, that they're working in. Instead, they're shipped out from, like the suburbs and come in to to enforce laws on um, black and brown people and to put violence on black and brown people. And 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 then and then when they rack up too many infractions and they get real close to getting dismissed, they come down here. Right. They come down here or, you know, go over to Newark or, you know, whatever um, outlying places they want because they just keep moving them around. Right. I mean, it's a very similar system to how uh, the 1970s, 1980s Catholic Church uh, moved abusers around different kind of abuser, but still abuse and violence. Right. Like big systems will always find a way to keep their cogs and their wheels well oiled. And, and working well because they just move it all around. So you end up in situations, you know, we, we had a situation uh, recently in Chillicothe where we decided to open our residency requirements because way back when you were required to be a resident of the county to be part of the city police. Well, that had changed back in probably the 60s or 70s where they said, well, you can be a resident of any county that touches our county and still be uh, considered for the police force. We now have a requirement in this place where if you are within 50 straight line miles of any part of the city limits, uh, 
you can be a police officer. So if you live uh, just south, like if if you were if you were able to buy a condo in a building on the south side of Capitol Square in Columbus at the State House, south side of Capitol Square, you could be a commuting police officer in Chillicothe, Ohio. You could live, you could, you could live all the way down, uh, you know, in some parts of Kentucky and commute to be a police officer, a beat cop in Chillicothe, Ohio, right? So like those laws in, in Columbus and in other systems, it basically sets up a situation where when you are a cop that ends up with too many infractions recorded... You can just move to any other community because you don't need to live in that community. You don't need to have mm-hmm. roots in that community. You don't need, you don't even need to be near that community when you go home at night. Mm-mm. And can can we can we talk? So I know like <laughs> again talk. again this is this is this is my this is my my white person my white person infatuation coming out here like can we talk about chit fest for a minute? Oh my can we God. can we talk about the white foolishness up on Chittenden Avenue that happens all the so like talk about how ridiculous we, it is the uh, Ohio State in general. We but. already established in the radio edit that I am a dinosaur compared to you, right? Like because like <laughs> you you born up in here in, in uh, nineteen ninety six. I was born in nineteen eighty, and. <laughs> Um, you know, like <clears throat> when I went to college, right back in the day, mm-hmm. um, folk would go down to, you know, from, from my university at Ohio Wesleyan up in Delaware, folk would go down to Chit Fest, right? Cause like it was a big party because all these fraternity folk, all these sorority folk, all, you know, all these, these people, you know, historically, um, you know, pretty privileged white kids with money would spend the whole day out just having a great old time. You could get any kind of drug down there you wanted. You could drink any kind of liquor you wanted most of the time for free. You could usually find just about anybody to do just about anything on Chittenden Avenue during Chit Fest. And you get that kind of, you know, bacchanalia, you know, this this freewheeling environment where people just lose their their inhibitions you couple that with the fact that most of these people know that they're going to have no consequences for bad behavior and they do stupid, stupid crap, right? So this year we saw people flipping cars at Chitfest. Well, let me tell you, it is no new thing uh, that people are flipping cars over at Chitfest. It is no new thing that this kind of ridiculous behavior and destruction of public property is happening because it happens just about every year, right? I mean, in some uh, level, some magnitude. Obviously, this year, a little stronger year than, than we've had in the past in terms of uh, property damage. But the big, big shocking piece for me is that we see this experience of Chitfest right up next to the kind of violent response that the police has been giving to black and brown people demanding accountability for police violence. And historically, year after year, time after time, police do nothing. At Chitfest. Now, like, I'm not over here begging the police to brutalize, uh, you know, rich white teens. Like, that. That's, that's not what I'm asking for. 
But I am asking for all of us to take just a minute and recognize how ridiculous it is that police officers stand back and say, you know what, it's property damage and it's not really a good thing, but we're not going to get involved, versus being like absolute crackdown mode every time BLM decides they want to march down the street in Columbus. Like, Mm -hmm. that is just, that is the most racist dichotomy. And uh, I just think it's it's real interesting, and I've seen some people on Twitter point this out, that, like, uh, this this year seems deliberate, you know? Because uh, people have talked about how in past years, literally the police would be on it. Like, if you were not on your own personal property at a certain point with your beverage, like they're gonna arrest you like I I was told or uh I think I had read somewhere that like you know um CPD would be like on horseback going down shit during chip fest like you know making sure that things are under control but then this year um I also saw somebody complaining about how they you know tried to get some type of help about like their cars literally being flipped and they're like oh they're just like it's just gonna be a while I'm sorry you just there's nothing you can do about it it's like what and and then, and then I like will never forget the memory of going in, um, going down the street downtown um, during during protests and seeing literally like it had to be like a hundred police officers all in riot gear against what like thirty five people with signs and one one bullhorn. <laughs> like, what are you afraid of, man? And the the like staunch difference between those two you know i said this a similar thing about when the insurrection at the capitol happened like the difference between the reaction with 35 people walking around the city of columbus um versus people literally trying to break into the capitol was astounding but now uh you can literally compare it within within a year within the same city literally just like a mile apart well and i and i think i think it's i think it's critical for us to understand that you know thousands of people trying to break into the u.s capitol and hundreds of people acted a fool on chittenden avenue hundreds of white White people people acted a fool right are not nearly as deep a threat to the ingrained system of white supremacy Mm -hmm. as 35 black people claiming space walking through mm-hmm. downtown, speaking truth. That's mm-hmm. the reality. We are seeing the system respond in the, in the exact way the system is designed to respond because this system is designed to maintain white supremacy and white power. Yeah. My, my, I, I, I got to get this in because if, if I didn't, um, I, I could never forgive myself. My best memory from Chitfest in college was wanting to ride one of the horses. You talk about, you know, folk coming on, on the horse patrol. <laughs> yes. I wanted to ride one of the horses, and I had won, so I'm, I'm giving away a lot of Pastor Terry's background here. I had won a bottle of Lagavulin scotch in a card uh-huh. game, like, a couple hours ahead of time. And I, I had about half of it left. I traded that Lagavulin for a chance to ride one of the horses. And the police officer took that bottle and got off that horse and let me ride that horse around for like 15 minutes. And when I came back, right, like he put that crap down in his bag and went on. Like that was uh, my interaction as a white man, um, pretty clueless about a lot of things. 
um, in what? That would have been 2004? 2004, 2005. I'll, I'll have to go back and I'll, I'll look through the, the Facebook memories there a little bit. <laughs> um, but like that whole conversation is radically different because there is not a level of um a level of community that black folk have access to when it comes to violent systems like the police like mm-hmm. that would never have happened and you know for all the violations of i know you know tons of really good rules that that was um it's an example of the privilege that i had and still have, you know, frankly, because of the color of my skin, to literally break laws with a law enforcement officer in the middle of the street and face no repercussions for it whatsoever. Which, you know, literally thousands of folk have done at Chitfest, right? Like, with the police! Mm-hmm. And and you contrast that to the violence and the the arrogance. I mean, the, the police are are actively in Columbus trying to encourage people to to act out or act in ways that they can then crack down on, right? The targeting of protesters, we've seen it with, with folk who, um, you know, have been protesting for Repro. They are targeting Repro protesters. They are targeting the loud voices in the community because they know that those voices are not just making them look bad, but those voices are changing the culture, right? It is changing the culture. It's changing people in terms of their outlook for the whole of racist policing, the whole of, uh, you know, this this hegemonic anti-repro ideology that, that folk have uh, ingrained in this, this state and in the city. That's profound to know that, like, Okay, you're you're fighting back because these folk are winning, right? Mm-hmm. These these folk are winning the culture war right now. And to go back to the the thing that I was talking about earlier with the conflict, the conflict is not abuse book, mm-hmm. which would recommend. Even if you can't come to my book club, even if you don't want to come to my book club, just read the book. It's a good book. It's difficult, but it's good. Anyway, um, it that just tells you what uh. And I, I let me back up a step. Um, I've said this before, and I will always say it. The the people who are police officers, like, are also people who have biases, people who choose to do things in a certain way because of their own thoughts and opinions and things like that, and are not just, like, blank slate unbiased people. And... If you and then if you add on the stuff that I've been talking about with conflict is not abuse, the the idea of what is harm and what is abuse and who gets to decide that because of our pictures of what God looks like, though that kind of white that white God um, complex. Uh, I just think that this this um, difference, this stark juxtaposition of how they treat people at Chitfest and how they treat people literally walking down the street speaking the truth um in protest shows you what they think is harm which is black bodies what they think is fine and can be something that can be resolved in kind of a conflict management situation like you were talking about trading 
<laughs> trading scotch for a horseback ride. I mean, yeah. you had a conflict there. You wanted to ride the horse. <laughs> That's illegal. And you were able to to get through that. I'm not, I'm not saying that I necessarily I'm, condone that behavior. I'm Appalachian. But... <laughs> Bartering is in my blood. That's how we You know, but like, so you can see like what they consider harm, what they consider not to be harm, which in that situation, that is illegal. And protesting is not illegal. And so you can see the the only difference here the the real difference is that white people are doing illegal things and black people are doing things within their legal rights to fight for themselves and apparently that comes off as abusive i think and, and that is not that is not at all a black people problem that's a you problem a hundred percent hundred percent. Like, no, it it is a me problem though. Like I I think I think all white people need to understand that I don't care who you are, I don't care what your background is, I don't care what you do for a living or what kind of petitions you sign or people you vote for. If you're white in this country, racism's your problem, mm-hmm. right? It is it is our problem because it's not it's not racism, it's white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm white supremacist ideologies that oppress and marginalize black and brown bodies through systems of violence like fascist capitalism in this community right that that forces people to devalue themselves and and harm their bodies to earn a wage right like the the other thing that's really on my spirit right now and I'll I'll promise I won't preach too long on this side sermon but like I'm in just awe of how many local businesses in my community and other communities are taking to social media complaining about unemployment right now because they have basically, you know, not been able to fill their employee positions because there are many people who, when they got laid off or they, you know, went on unemployment, have too generous, in in the words of these business owners, too generous of a package through unemployment. And the assessment is we need to stop that unemployment so these people come back to work, which at the end of the day is folks saying we have to make it hard on people so that they have no other option except to come to me for a job, right? That is the fundamental problem that we're experiencing, you know, in this nation and the fundamental root of this violent racist system is that white folk have been able to benefit from a system that keeps people of color marginalized economically and dependent upon white folk for jobs, right? How many times did we hear the phrase job creator, right? Which is just a BS word for the boss, right? Like, you got to dump the bosses off your back, right? Like, that's that's where we are. Because at the end of the day, if you're getting more money with $300 extra a week on unemployment than you would working a job, that just means the job you used to have has shitty wages. Mm-hmm. Let's be real clear. And if you're not able to fill your positions at an institution, whether it's you know, restaurant, retail, or anything else, if you're not able to fill those positions because somebody would rather stay at home and away from your job for $300 a week, that means you got some problems with your business. And you got some problems with your business model and with your whole damn culture. Because if 
if folk really are staying home because they make more money, I'm I'm not parsing that out, uh, you know, because I, I don't feel like doing the math, but I'm pretty sure that just means you have crappy wages and a really bad work like environment. Yeah. So, like, fix your problem and you won't have a problem. Right. Which is, you know, back to back to white folk. Like, like the fact that white people get anxious when black people exercise their First Amendment rights, that is a white person problem. And that's something white people got to work on, not black folk. Right. And there, before we before we close this off, um, I know we could go on. Forever. <laughs> Forever. Forever. Um, but I wanted to share this uh, tweet from the Columbus mayor mm. Mm, 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 uh, mm. that came out after some protests that had happened uh, last week uh, and the lies that came from the police department. And I could I could go into that, but I'm not I'm not I'm not going to go into how angry I am with with the police on that specifically but talking about how white people it's it's white people's problem um around racism and around this insecurity with having black people in their spaces and the fact that a black people a black person speaking truth is harmful to white people um i want to share this this quote about especially i think this is important coming from a like you know a progressive mayor a democrat don't um, don't don't call Andy Gither a progressive, please. I would read quotes on that. If you oh can, Lord. I know oh. I know on the podcast you guys can't hear me put quotes, but I try to put that inflection in there. Um anyway. We we so. we praying for Andy. We praying for Andy. <laughs> Go ahead. Go okay, ahead. so on April thirteenth he tweeted this and I don't want people to think that I I'm quoting this out of context because there are no other tweets that go with this tweet. Anyway. We share the frustrations over police killings of unarmed black men, and we support nonviolent protests. That does not include breaking into public buildings or violence against police officers, or against officers. Let me be clear, violence and destruction will not be tolerated. Now, what I hear out of this is not that they're, for one, frustrations? <laughs> frustrations? Okay, sure you do. And then secondly, the way, like, you know, if you if you take that first sentence, maybe I could get something good out of that. But you end on the words, let me be clear, violence and destruction will not be tolerated. It sounds like you just want to silence people. It well, sounds like you care more about property. And, and this from the man who could have said, let me be clear, murdering unarmed black men will not be tolerated. Let me be clear, murdering yeah. children will not be tolerated. Let me be clear, police brutality in the city of Columbus that has been going on for decades will not be tolerated? No. What does he decide is not going to be tolerated? Harming stuff. Well, there's your stuff, Mayor, and that's why that fella is not progressive. That fella is is part of the capitalist system of maintaining white wealth. That is what that fella is there to do. Mm -mm. And and I just think that mm -mm. that um, I know that like some some people like to think that he's progressive, and I don't that's not true. They're delusional. Um, yeah. They have they have lost their mind. They they need to go see my therapist. Mm -hmm. I will pay for for that first trip, right? <laughs> uh but Progressive. Uh, this especially uh for for what I've been calling well-meaning white people who may see themselves as um as not racist or as working towards being better. 
Um, this is the kind of stuff that you cannot be silent about. Mm, when, mm, mm. when this is, this is laced with, uh, that same kind of rhetoric, that same kind of idea that, like, black people voicing their truth, voicing the truth, is harmful. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that is white people's problem. And I need more people to be talking about that. It the the loss of black life the grief the trauma i've been trying to stay away from the the trials i've been trying to stay away from like uh outside of like what i need to know the the bulk of the news about black and brown death and black and brown um pain and still even with me stepping away from that i still feel the hurt feel the grief it's like a cloud hanging over me and my friends and the people that I'm in community with. It's not a frustration. Right. It's not. It's a deep in-ground pain and grief. It's it it causes me to tear up to think about. It's it's the reason that like I I haven't been able to wear a full face of makeup in like 2 weeks because I I would just cry it out anyway. Um so it's not just frustration mm. and the fact that you're going to call it a frustration and then pair it with saying that property is way more important than you talking about how sad you are about how unjust this is. Thanks, I, Ginther. You've I, made me cry. I feel like, I feel like this exclusive needs to be named white folks come for your people, <laughs> right? Because it's like, it's like, please. Please, folks, like really, and and you know, you know that that tweet did not just like Andrew Ginther is not he didn't even take it down. It's and, still there. Uh, right, and, and Andrew Ginther is not the the former you know forty fifth president of the United States. It's not like it just comes out of his hands into stuff. Like everything that Andy Ginther puts out is shopped. It's talked about. You know, people. You know, their edits made. He's he's got you know two or three different people who are tweeting for him. Like. This man meant to say those words in that way. And they're crappy words. A crappy sentiment. Like, and obviously he thinks that's what's going to keep him in his position. And if white people let him, he's going to be right. White, white folks, come for your people. That's where we are. Because like, as much as I hate to admit it, Andy Ginther's one of my people, right? Like, he's... He's he's in the same party that I'm in, even though I don't think we ought to call it the same thing. But here we are, right? Like he's he's a you know tubby little white dude. <laughs> Them's my people. Them's my people. Well, maybe I uh, should write a letter to Mayor Ginther. <laughs> that could be our next podcast, <laughs> dear Andy. Ooh, we could oh, have a man. whole we could have a whole podcast on that, just dear Andy. I, I right. yeah, we could have we could start a whole spin-off podcast about like our issues with with the mayor of Columbus. He it, just... it, it it's not our issues with the mayor, it's the mayor's issues. Uh-huh. <laughs> just, anyway, we appreciate okay. all y'all for ha- hanging around with us here today and, and hearing us we, rant. <laughs> we just want to remind you all to take time to care for you. Because yes. you are the most important asset and resource that 
the world has in this moment because it is in your thriving and in your self-care that we will find collective liberation together. Care for yourself, drink plenty of water, try not to watch too much of the news unless you really, really need to, and keep on keeping on, folks. Mm -hmm. And and one other other thing I'd like to mention, if you need... If you're wanting um, community who is is working towards um, reflecting a more restorative and transformative justice-minded uh, context in our actions and in the way we're in community with each other, we have started a uh, Facebook group for the book club that we've been running since February. Um, if you look it up on Facebook, it's just called Ohio RCRC Restorative and Transformative Justice Book Club. And um, there'll be some questions for you to answer, um, but we would love to have you um, and to be in community with each other because I think it's just, it's just important to have, have people to have these conversations with and to um, begin to try to learn and be with. So I hope you'll join us and I hope you'll come back in two weeks to hear us rant about something else. (laughs) 